We thank you that um, your word is in front of us this morning, that you want us to understand it. And we pray that by uh, your Holy Spirit, you'll help us to understand it. Um, pray for your blessing as I uh, uh, proclaim it this morning, proclaim Christ, and uh, uh, for the blessing on all who hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, uh, we've got the title uh, this morning uh, for the sermon is Follow the Master. And uh, we're picking up uh, immediately after last week's uh, text. Last week we saw the Apostle Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah or as the Christ of God. And we considered the question of whether or not each of us agrees with him about that. This week, we see that in the next verses of Luke chapter 9, from 21 to 36, Jesus gives his disciples a crash course or an intensive in the meaning of Messiahship. The faithful Jews had been expecting the Messiah, but what sort of Messiah had they been expecting? Perhaps a political liberator, perhaps an enforcer. When, some of them were probably starting to ask, was Jesus going to get on with it? Now, of course, Jesus knows the hearts of men and women. And the minute that Peter had recognized and confessed that Jesus was the Christ, he was keen for them to understand what sort of Messiah he was and what that would mean for them as his disciples. And it's just as important for each of us that we understand Jesus' teaching about these things. What kind of Messiah do we follow? Well, in verses 21 and 22 of Luke 9, we see that Jesus says that we follow a Messiah who is the man of sorrows, but who utterly prevails or triumphs. Let's read those verses again. Jesus strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. I think it's helpful for us to start by recognising in thinking about these words that there's a gap between us and the disciples. The things that Jesus is saying are well known to most of us today and it might take some mental effort for us to imagine what sort of a, a shock they would have been to the disciples at this time. We know that it was a shock because in Matthew's Gospel, uh, recounting the same events, Peter, who, as we know, had just confessed that Jesus was the Christ of God, he was so shocked by what Jesus said next that he rebuked Jesus for saying that these these things would happen. In in this uh, quotation, in this text, Jesus tells the disciples that he must suffer many things, be rejected by the religious leaders, be killed, and be raised on the third day. So rather than a path of triumph ahead of him, As expected, at least at first, Jesus describes an ordeal of suffering leading to death. And it's not the last time in the Gospels that Jesus predicts this. What we read this morning was just the beginning of Jesus' preparation of the disciples for his sufferings and death. And he mentions these things several more times before they happen. If you turn quickly to Luke 18 you'll see, uh, and this is Luke 18, 31, you'll see what Jesus said a bit later on when uh, all of them were getting very close to Jerusalem. 
Luke 18 from verse 31. Then Jesus took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. What a contrast this was with the expectations of the Messiah around at that time. But as we think about these things, it's important that we see that the suffering and death of the Messiah, which Jesus predicted here, his sufferings and death were both necessary and they were voluntary. So firstly, we see that the suffering and death of the Messiah was necessary. Notice Jesus says here, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Don't miss that must there at the start. There's a necessity to these things, Jesus is saying. He consistently said that these things must happen. And he said this not only before they happened, but afterwards as well. If you think about the beautiful uh, chapter, Luke 24, after Jesus' resurrection, uh, he says it twice. In verses 25 to 27, he says to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, who haven't recognised him yet, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus saw that the necessity for these things had been explained throughout the Old Testament. He says a similar thing later in the same chapter, in verse 44 of Luke 24, where he says to more of his disciples, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So the sufferings of Jesus were not a surprise to him. He had seen from scripture that they were a necessary thing for the Messiah. For example, in Isaiah 53, he'd seen it, uh, on the Lord's suffering servant. Uh, Ben read this to you to you earlier, uh, but let's look again at verses 3 to 6 of Isaiah 53. On the suffering servant, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we are like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So not only were they uh, no surprise to Jesus, his sufferings were no accident. They were a compelling divine necessity. Jesus was called to the cross, which was central to God's plan of redemption for his people. This is, uh, the purpose of this is explained in many places in the New Testament, including in uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 18, which says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus had not gone through this for his people, we would still be utterly lost 
and alienated from God. Now, secondly, we see that the suffering and death of the Messiah was voluntary or deliberate. Jesus was fully conscious that it was approaching and he willingly underwent it. He talks about it here. Mm. Sorry. He willingly underwent it. Uh, We can see this if we read the start of the great passage on Jesus' humiliation in Philippians 2. Notice how much agency is uh, uh, sort of... We talk about people having agency when when they're active agents in what they do, uh, not, 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 not passive victims, as it were. How much agency Jesus is given here, how many things he's doing in this passage. So Paul writes, Let this mind be you... Be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man, of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. In itself, the incarnation was an unimaginable humbling for God the Son, wasn't it? And it was a humbling in more ways than we could ever uh, dream of. I just think, for example, as uh, Deb mentioned to me, she remembered something that was said in a Christmas sermon, that it's incredible when you think that Jesus submitted, uh, in his life on earth, Jesus submitted to authorities that he'd created himself. And this humbling continued in Jesus' suffering, rejection and death. And it continued to the bitter end. But at every stage of it, he was a willing and deliberate participant. Jesus speaks himself of his uh, willingness uh, to suffer this death in John chapter 10, uh, from verses 15 to 18. Jesus, talking about being the good shepherd, says, I lay down, I lay down my life for the sheep. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it up, and I have power to take it up again. Jesus submitted to all this, willingly and indeed lovingly, for the redemption of his people. Uh, I'd like to quote uh, a Victorian-era evangelical Anglican bishop called J.C. Ryle, and I'll quote him directly because it's impossible to improve on what he's written. He's written about this. Jesus' death upon the cross was the voluntary act of his own free will. He was not delivered up to Pilate and crucified because he could not help it and had no power to crush his enemies. His death was the result of the eternal counsels of the Blessed Trinity. This is something that theologians call the covenant of redemption, an agreement among the Trinity to redeem a people. Jesus had undertaken to suffer for man's sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He had engaged to bear our sins as our, as our substitute and surety and he bore them willingly in his own person on the tree. He saw Calvary and the cross before him all the days of his ministry. He went up to them willingly, knowingly and with full consent that he might pay our debts in his own blood. His death was not the death of a mere weak son of man who could not escape, but the death of one who was very God, a very God, and had undertaken to be punished in our stead. This quote from Ryle helps us to see how the necessity and the voluntariness, the voluntariness of Jesus' sufferings and death come together. He was utterly willing to go through these things which needed to occur so that his people might be saved. 
We thank him profoundly for this at every Lord's Supper when we remember his death, sufferings and death. Uh, Also, of course, at Easter, which is approaching, but perhaps most, also importantly, every day, we need to remember and thank him for this. Now, thirdly, we see that the sufferings and death of the Messiah, which we've dwelled upon, because he dwelt upon it, they were effective and ultimately triumphant, as proven by his resurrection. Even here, where Jesus is breaking the news to the disciples of his approaching suffering, rejection and death, he includes what we could reverently call a spoiler. He also reveals that these things will not end in his defeat, but in triumph with his resurrection. He says that the Son of Man will be raised on the third day. After descending to the deepest depths, he would rise again to the highest heights. That uh, returns us to that great passage of Philippians 2, picking up where we left it from verse 9, following Jesus' death on the cross. Paul writes, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. At a basic level, there was an aspect of comfort in uh, what Jesus said in in Luke 9.22. Comfort for the disciples, if, if they were able to hear it, that his death would not be the end. But we can say much more about it than that. Jesus' resurrection would completely vindicate him and vindicate the disciples' faith in him. His resurrection would prove Jesus' lordship. It would prove the effectiveness and satisfactoriness of his work of redemption and it would achieve our acquittal in the courts of heaven, our justification forever. The path for the Messiah was not a path of glory, as we have seen, but it was the path to glory through suffering, rejection and death. And Jesus goes on to explain to the disciples in the following verses that they should expect to walk no different path themselves. Let's look at verses 23 to 25 again. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Uh, We should note that in verse 23, it says that Jesus was speaking to all. Not here then, just to his closest disciples, but to anyone who was considering following him. And he's teaching them all that to follow the Messiah involves daily self-denial and suffering. Losing your life, potentially, but saving your soul. So Jesus does not promise us a path of glory in this life. The path of glory is a temptation to all Christians in different ways, whether it might be some form of prosperity gospel or perhaps enjoying the perks of leadership in a church or something else. The path of glory is always uh, an attractive one. But instead, Jesus says that the path to glory for his followers is through taking up your cross daily. This is the first time that the word cross is used in Luke. So it's interesting that it's not used here in connection with Jesus' death, but with the believer's life. We know that this image of the cross is taken from the very cruel Roman execution practice of crucifixion, where those who were condemned to be executed had to carry their own cross to their place of execution. Jesus must have been reflecting on his own unfolding path of suffering and obedience, 
when he urged his followers to follow him in self-denial, in complete dedication and willing obedience. He said this more than once. A few chapters later in Luke 14, verse 27, Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He's clear that this is a mandatory requirement. Suffering and self-denial are a must for the disciples and for us too. Death to self, if not actual death. And of course, some Christians are called to that in some places. We, we often understand this very quickly on coming to faith, uh, perhaps going through that stage known as counting the cost, where we count the cost of following Jesus. But we can also lose sight of this over the years. As C.S. Lewis says in the Screwtape Letters, as we grow older and we find our place in the world, often the world finds its place in us too. But Jesus is saying that we must be prepared to turn our back on these things daily, day by day. The Christian life is a thing of dogged perseverance in faithfulness and growth in love and holiness. It's not a thing of occasional emotional sugar highs with no real progress in substantial things. We must daily put to death our sin and fight the distractions and fear arising around us so that we can follow him faithfully. Paul writes in Galatians 5 that those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its affections and lusts. And this is our daily task. To follow our Lord Jesus, we need to resolve every day to give up our self-centeredness, our self-will and our self-interest. We must bring our will into subjection to God's will. It's not a one-off surrender. It's a daily surrender. The cross must be taken up every day. There will be no end to it until we leave this world. We can't bear this burden on our own, but we can do it through Christ living in us as we live for his sake. Truly, it is better for us to live for Jesus than to live for ourselves. It might not be a path of glory, but it is the path to glory. How can we say that we follow the master if we won't walk in the same path that he did? And then finally, uh, I have something to say about the rest of the passage, but it's going to be uh, faster and by way of summary. The lesson I'd like us to take particularly from a brief look at the rest of it, from verses 24 to 36, is about the glory awaiting Christ's people. The promise that the faithful will gain Christ himself and see his glorious kingdom. Through the cross, we behold the crown. Jesus says in verse 24 that if we are prepared to go to the extent of losing our life for his sake, we will save it. Don't be distracted by the glittering prizes of the world and miss out on the crown of life from Christ himself. Don't lose your soul through being too self-absorbed and self-centred. And verse 25 suggests that there is nothing valuable enough in the world that we should forfeit our divinely created soul over it. As humans, we were made for communion with God, so don't shun him. Life is to be lived for Christ's sake. Saving faith has an absolute self-forgetful commitment to Christ and his kingdom. It is such a person who Jesus will acknowledge when he returns in the threefold glory mentioned in verse 26 when he returns in his own glory and that of his fathers and of the holy angels, glory upon glory. Uh, it's, this is expressed negatively in, in verse 26, that he will uh, 
be ashamed of anyone who is ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. But the, the reverse of that is that those who are not ashamed of him, he will acknowledge and, and they will participate in that glory. Jesus then uh, goes on to promise in verse 27 that some of the disciples present, as he speaks, would see the kingdom of God before they die. And this was fulfilled in the, his transfiguration, which comes next. Peter, James and John were given a glimpse of his dazzling glory and the endorsement of the voice of God from the cloud. In, these, in those moments, these men were closer to knowing Christ in his fullness than any men up to that time. But that was only the first taste of the promise made to all faithful disciples that we will see the kingdom of God and behold the glory of Christ. The final chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, promises that there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. Faithful disciples gain Christ. From the daily grind of cross-bearing to the heavenly city, may the Lord preserve us all the way, and may we remind ourselves daily, no cross, no crown. Amen. Well, let's sing now with gratitude.